0: This episode of Off My Shelf contains coarse language and adult conversation. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, my name is Tracy James, and welcome to Off My Shelf, a podcast about movies that are well off my shelf, where we go through my DVDs and talk about the movies in my collection. In this episode, Shayna Fine was supposed to be here to talk about Curious George and Dark City, but due to the beginning of the end, We thought it best not to get together. We are both trying our best to be responsible parts of society by doing our duty, self-isolating and social distancing. That could not have been accomplished recording my small apartment across a two-foot table. So now you get the fortunate, or possibly unfortunate, pleasure of listening to my sultry voice meander through a self-discussion of these two movies. I know, these two films are a very weird combo to discuss. Why, you might ask, are these two together then? Well, because they came together in alphabetical order. That's it. I do move things around sometimes, but it made little difference in this case. Curious George is the last of the films in the C's, and the D's are strange and amazing, but nothing that really goes with it, so this stuck. But 2006's Curious George is a great movie to help you forget about what is going on. I know, I know, it is a silly kids animated movie. But it is so cute and so adorable that you just kind of smile and it makes you feel less, less forlorn. Carrie's George is based on the series of kids books that many of us grew up with. These books have been published since 1941 and were created by Margaret and H.A. Ray. But his first appearance was actually two years earlier in another book by H.A. Ray called Cecily G. and the Nine Monkeys, about a giraffe and her nine monkey friends. This story actually sounds really depressing, about taking animals and putting them in the zoo and deforestation and then there's something about a fire. What? From that we got Curious George, who is one of the nine monkeys. We are actually lucky to have these two stories at all because the Rays, who were Jewish, lived in Paris at the start of World War II. They had to flee on homemade bicycles and they managed to get out just before Hitler's army invaded France. One of the few items they took with them were the manuscripts for Curious George. Despite the fact that there are many Curious George stories out there right now, there were only 7 books published during the author's lifetime. The original Curious George, Curious George takes a job, rides a bike, gets a medal, flies a kite, learns the alphabet, and goes to the hospital, where the only recurring characters were George and the man in the yellow hat. In the original stories, the man in the yellow hat was never given a name, but I guess for story purposes he was given one for this movie, Ted, who was voiced by Will Ferrell. I actually think the voice work in this movie is fantastic. Ferrell does an awesome job in his first animated role as Ted, sounding goofy, clumsy, frustrated, but never mean. David Cross is just hilarious as Junior, the jealous, unappreciated son of the aged explorer, Mr. Bloomsbury, voiced by Dick Van Dyke. There was a scene in the movie where Ted and Junior were talking and I had the weirdest this is right, but there's something wrong moment. You know what I mean. Like when you see someone every day and they do something minor to change themselves but you can't put your finger on it. Like teeth whitening. Well, it is because four years after this film, Farrell and Cross did the voices in together. Such a funny movie. And I think my brain was like, shouldn't that be Megamind and Minion? Hmm. Because of that movie, I can't hear the word melancholy without giggling. (laughs) Melancholy. There was also the voice talents of Drew Barrymore, Eugene Levy. This was actually his first animated film as well, which seems surprising to me, but maybe that is because he has done several since, and Frank Welker. The last name may not be known to most, but Frank Welker, who vocalizes Curious George's adorable little monkey sounds, has been doing voice work for decades and you would for sure have heard him. He is the original voice of Scooby Doo and still does his voice today. Also Santa's Little Helper on The Simpsons, The Cave of Wonders from Aladdin, who disturbs my slumber, a bunch of voices in Transformers including Megatron and Soundwave, Nibbler from Futurama and Grimace, described as a large purple anthropomorphic being of indeterminate species with short arms and legs from McDonald's land. Who remembers McDonald land? Oh, that reminds me (laughs) uh, um, of the episode of Simpsons when Homer becomes Krusty and was at Krusty Burger to introduce their new burger, the one with ketchup. He beats up Krusty Burglar because he thinks he's going to steal all the hamburgers. <laughs> stop, stop, he's already dead. Gets me every time. Anyways, Walker has over 800 credits on IMDb. Welker is also my Star Trek connection. What? Ding, 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 ding. Actually, he has several connections to Star Trek. He did voices in two video games was the voice of an alien creature in the 8th episode of season 5 of Voyager, called Nothing Human. And what I think is the coolest connection, he does Spock screams in Star Trek Three: Search for Spock. It is no Wilhelm scream, but it's pretty amazing. Oh, if you don't know, or maybe you have heard references to this but aren't sure, this is the Wilhelm scream. It is an absolutely ridiculous scream that has been used in films since 1951. Though it was voiced by Sheb Woolley, it was named after the character Private Wilhelm, who was shot in the leg in the 1953 Western, The Charge at Feather River, where the sound effect was used. Since then, the sound has gained a certain level of notoriety. Originally, it wasn't added as an in-joke, but it's kind of turned into an in-joke, after it was added to many famous movies, TV shows, and video games. I'm looking at you, Starcraft. It is said to be in over 433 films, and it is fun to pick out when you hear it. But it still hasn't done as much work as Frank Welker. But I digress. Back to Curious George. Another thing that makes this movie just so light and fun is the soundtrack by Jack Johnson. You can't frown while listening to it. Well. One kind of breaks your heart right at the beginning, but that's it. The song, supposed to be, that plays over the opening of the film where you find George in the jungle playing with all his jungle friends, being cute and curious, and then they all go home with their parents and you realize he's all alone. I'm not crying. You're crying. At least it's not as bad as Up or Finding Nemo or any Disney movie, really, where they actively try to break you with the immediate cruel death of a close loved one. For this, I can see poachers moving through the jungle underbrush, coming after him and his mother, all very Bambi-esque. Anyways, all the songs just exude a sunny carefreeness that Johnson's music is known for and that really adds to the vibrant nature of the movie. It also helps you forget all that unpleasantness at the beginning. In addition to the nine songs that were used in the film, Johnson, for the soundtrack album, which has a long title, Singalongs and Lullabies from the film Curious George, has three additional songs, including a song about recycling called the three Rs, which explains, well, the three Rs, you remember, reduce, reuse, recycle, a lullaby, and the song We're Going to Be Friends. I knew that Jack Johnson didn't write this song, but I was very surprised to find that it was written by another Jack, Jack White of the White Stripes in 2001, and was part of the album White Blood Cells released in 2002. I don't know, I just thought the song was much older than that. But this was also used as the opening song for the weird and wonderful Napoleon Dynamite. The song has had several covers done by various artists, as well as specially played for Conan O'Brien by request when the White Stripes came on Late Night. Conan also uses it for the opening of his podcast. What else is there to say about this movie? I didn't talk much about the storyline, because it isn't really that deep running thing. Ted goes to Africa to find the Lost Shrine of Zagawa to save the museum, but comes back with a monkey, and the antics ensue. It is whimsical, bright, but not insipid. It is easy and silly with lots of visual gags for kids, but there is some tidbits thrown in there for adults as well. Like I said, it's just a really cute movie. Then I got to overthinking and adulting and the consequences of bringing an undeclared animal into a foreign country. Then because of what is going on, I think of movies like Contagion and 28 Days Later. He could be out there being cute but infecting all the people and bringing down society. Or am I just remembering a Robot Chicken skit? Hmm. Who knew that Robot Chicken didn't just make us laugh, but taught us a lesson too? Well, that got dark. I guess this is my smooth segue from Curious George to Dark City. First off, I gotta say, my DVD was not working. I tried everything, and all it did was crash my computer six times. So pissed. I always thought a DVD lifespan was about 15 to 20 years, but according to Google, it can be as much as 200 years if stored correctly. What? Then what is the deal with my discs? I mean, so far this podcast I have gone through about 134 discs in 40 episodes, and 3 discs haven't worked. That is, well, roughly a 2% faulty rate. That means if this rate keeps constant, I have about 13 to 14 faulty discs altogether. Unless I find some other better place to store my discs, or worst case scenario, something horrible happens to them. Oh, never mind. I can't think about that. Anyways, Dark City, the sci-fi classic from 1998, directed by the same guy who directed The Crow, Alex Proyas. I think I'm saying that right. Ah, uh, The Crow, another sci-fi cult classic that's excessively 90s, which gained most of its notoriety from A, cashing in on that emo slash goth scene that was really prevalent at the time. B, uh, it's also one of the early comic book adaptation films. And C, sadly, the notorious death of its star, Brandon Lee. If you don't remember, Brandon Lee was the son of Bruce Lee and was just starting to make a name for himself in the film when tragedy struck. There was all kinds of speculation about how he died, but officially he died of a gunshot wound received on set from a faulty prop gun. But there were whispers about the set being cursed a la Poltergeist and The Exorcist style. There was a conspiracy. It was payback for something he had done and all sorts of other things. Anyways, did you know there were four Crow movies and a TV show? I didn't. So of course there was The Crow and The Crow City of Angels, both of which I have seen, but not for a very long time. Then there was a the TV show, The Crow Stare Rid of Heaven. What? And there were two other movies, The Crow Salvation and The Crow Wicked Prayers, which I didn't even know existed. This is knowledge I can't unknow. I kind of want to see these, especially since the third and fourth movies have the likes of Christian Dunst, Edward Furlong, David Boreanaz, Tara Reid, and Dennis Hopper. But I also, I'm kind of on the side of, do I want to give these set of movies my time? Eh, probably not. Maybe one day, who knows. Anyways, Alex Proyas also went on to direct the critic and audience despised movies, Knowing, starring Nicolas Cage, and the culturally and racially insensitive Gods of Egypt. He also directed the not-so-bad, but-could-have-been-way-better iRobot. The thing that pissed me off the most about iRobot, more than anything, is that it should not have been called iRobot in the first place. Yeah, the story stems from Isaac Asimov's book of the same name that established the three laws of robotics, but that book is several short stories of robots and their evolution into future society. The story used in the movie was that of a novel called Caliban, aka Isaac Asimov's Caliban, written by Roger McBride Allen, set in the world that Asimov had created and was published in 1993. Sure, the book is a lot darker and twisted, but it is that story and McBride doesn't even get any credit for it. At least not on IMDb. So back to Dark City. So Dark City has a visual styling of The Crow meets The Matrix meets Chronicles of Riddick. As in, there are pale-skinned men wrapped in leathery outfits in a dark gray, green-toned environment with weird monolithic sculptures. Okay, before you get at me, I know The Matrix and Chronicles of Riddick were released after Dark City, but I'm weird to give it credit for for influencing their visual style. But instead of being futuristic, Dark City is set in this very 1940s, 1950s film noir city like you're in one of those old detective novels, but with sci fi elements. The filmmakers took the name Dark City a little too seriously, in my opinion, when they made this movie. I know it is supposed to take place in a mysterious city in perpetual night. But I spent most of the movie squinting trying to figure out what was going on. Everything happened in the shadows, making parts of the movie very hard to follow. I hadn't watched a movie in years or remembered very little, except Keith or Sutherland being in it and there was something to do with aliens and a beach. Keith or Sutherland has never sighed away from sci-fi throughout his career. Even before Dark City, he was in the show's Amazing Stories, created by Steven Spielberg, who actually directed a few episodes, including the episode Sutherland was in with Kevin Costner called The Mission. He was also in The Lost Boys, Flatliners, and Twin Peaks. This movie came in the midst of what people consider a slump in his career, which didn't really pick back up until he starred as Jack Bauer in 24. But the movie also stars two Oscar winners. Jennifer Connelly, who won for A Beautiful Mind in 2002, surprisingly her only Oscar nomination and win, and William Hurt, who won for Kiss of the Spider Woman in 1986. He also had three other nominations with Children of a Lesser God, Broadcast News, and A History of Violence, as well as the talented Rufus Sewell, who I enjoy best when he plays the bad guy, especially in A Knight's Tale where he was the Black Knight who also had the misfortune of being in the movie Gods of Egypt, working with Proyas again. For the rest of the cast, which is full of names I didn't recognize, but some faces I kind of do, there were some great and cheesy movie connections, like Richard O'Brien, who played Mr. Hand. You would probably know him best from Rocky Horror Picture Show as Riff Raff, so he's used to being ultra pale and in kinky getups. But I was tickled to find out that he was also in the cinematic wonder Spice World. Close of the world, spice up your life! Okay, confession moment. I have never watched Spice World, But I may know all the Spice Girls lyrics and dance moves. Keep that knowledge to yourself. Then there's Ian Richardson, who is a classically trained British actor. He was the titular politician in the original House of Cards, which the popular Netflix series was based on. There was also Bruce Spencer, who I recognized from Mad Max, but found he was in some other huge franchises, including Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. He did the voice of Chum in Finding Nemo. He was the train man in Matrix Revolutions. He was also in Lord of the Rings Return of the King, Star Wars Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith, but also in serious bombs like Australia, the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of Down Treader, I, Frankenstein, and sadly also in Gods of Egypt. Uh, there was also John uh, Bluthal, I, I want to say how you say his name. It's B L U T H A L. He was in The Fifth Element, one of my fave movies. I can watch that movie over and over. He plays Professor Piccoli right at the beginning. He was the one yelling, Aziz, light! love it. Looking at these actors also made me realize how many Aussies were in the movie, then found out that most of the shooting locations were actually in Australia. So then that made a whole lot of sense. I also found another Star Trek connection. I swear, Star Trek has been around for so long in so many iterations, it is more of a shock not to find a connection than there is to find a connection. I mean, this one isn't a great connection, as it is with Discovery, but it's a connection nonetheless. It is Melissa George. She was in the season two episode, If Memory Serves. It was the one that was a direct connection to the first episode of the original series when Pike was captain of the Enterprise. It was crap. Anyways, back to Dark City, the movie where an alien race created a floating city in space where they give people false memories and observe them to somehow determine the origins of the soul to save their dying species for some reason. But don't worry, one of the people in the city is immune to the alien powers and will free the humans, or just let them go to the beach. Yeah, no wonder I didn't remember what this movie was about. It is crazy convoluted and the convolution doesn't come back together to make any sense. The beach that everyone was trying to get to, or really the main character was trying to get to, was Shell Beach. This was also something that made me laugh, because I kept confusing it with Shell City. What is Shell City, you may ask? Well, if you are familiar with Who Lives in a Pineapple Under the Sea, you would know. It is where King Neptune's Crown was taken as part of the lemon-scented Plan Z in the Spongebob movie. Now there is another movie that I cannot get enough of. You want a feel-good movie? You should watch that. Unlike Spongebob or Curious George, Dark City isn't a feel-good movie. It is slow, dark, depressing, and a little bloody. It hasn't aged well, but the elements of a decent sci-fi are in there. I get why this is a cult classic. But I have seen this movie done a lot better. That may also be the issue upon rewatching. It now seems like a cliché, nothing new or interesting, compared to when it originally came out. Well, I think that's it. I still enjoy the adorableness that is here George, but not really into the bleak dark city. So that's it for this episode of Off My Shelf, I suppose. Until next time, you can follow along on Instagram and Twitter at Oh or you can send an email to ohmyshelf at gmail.com. On the next episode, if everything gets back to normal, I will have a guest and we will be talking about Darkwing Duck. Let's get dangerous. Hope you'll be here to listen.